All right. Good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Acts chapter 7. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 7. Aren't we in Acts 7? Uh, Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I did. Thank you. Could we do Exodus 7 or Acts 7? Let's do Acts 7 anyway, since that's what I studied for today. It'll be very applicable to your life and to mine. So just keep an errand on your toes, right? You just never know, buddy. Gosh, that's terrible. That's what I like to say, that this is what God really wanted, but that's really not probably true. It's just me not, yeah. Thank you, Mick. I'll take that. There's a lot of background, though, so let me go over the first six chapters with you real quick, (laughs) since we go verse by verse here. Um, (laughs) Well, this is the stoning of Stephen, okay? And that's a rough place to jump into, but it's important for Wednesday night and Sunday mornings, that we go over this. Stephen was just promoted last time on last Wednesday when I taught this at the right time to being a waiter, basically. The disciples uh, were studying and praying and, and didn't want to get away from that or take away from that. And so they, they had a problem in the church, a logistical situation where the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, weren't being taken care of. Okay, so they hired or raised up, laid hands on these uh, men to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to serve these widows and to take care of it and basically make sure they get the daily distribution, the food, make sure they're taken care of was their responsibility. But then all of a sudden, we see Stephen halfway through chapter 6 being all of a sudden a part of some sort of work. He's he's graduated somehow, you know. He is... uh, I don't know if graduate is the right word. He's just being used by God in a, in a greater capacity than just serving tables. And there's nothing wrong with just serving tables, but um, God's looking for those who are available to serve. And those that are available to serve, he can trust to be able to open their mouths with boldness to share his gospel. Also, you know, there's a thing there. There's a, he doesn't want folks sitting back on the couch waiting for the CEO position. He wants people that are willing to go to the mailroom. You know, that's what God's looking for. The men and women that God uses are those that are willing to serve in whatever capacity is needed. Some days it may be to be an evangelist. Other days it may be to get the plunger. You just don't know what God has for you each day, but willing to humbly do either task as unto the Lord, as if it was the greatest thing ever, you know, that you were able to serve the the true and living God. And so Stephen begins to do this, but of course the Sadducees, the ones that are part of the Sanhedrin, aren't happy that he's preaching, aren't happy that things are going on without Christ. They thought once they cut the head off the chicken, everything would be okay, but it's not. It's not. Uh, Things are exploding. Christ is being proclaimed. God is doing mighty works through the disciples. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the believers. And things are going crazy. So they arrested Stephen and they brought him before them. And the last thing we read... Wednesday, last week, 
on verse 15 was that all the council sat around, they looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. He's been accused of three things. Speaking against Moses, speaking against the temple, and speaking against the law. And, well, also their customs, but that's not really what he addresses. So in chapter 7 is Stephen's sermon. It's not really a defense, because he's not trying to get off. He's not trying to get acquitted. But he does address each one of those three accusations against him as he goes through this sermon. He goes over the Jewish history, goes over their background. And these are folks that don't need to be taught this. This is what they do every day. They study these things. They know these things. They elaborate on these things. I mean, this is like a pastor's conference, basically. And Stephen's getting up there, the waiter of the tables, and telling them their business, you know. Um, But they need to be told their business. Because somewhere along the line, as maybe they were zealous for God at the beginning of their calling to be a, a Jew of all Jews, which is the Sanhedrin, They'd forgotten to examine their own hearts when they came to the Scriptures. They'd gotten away from letting God speak to them and letting God interpret. And they began to come up with their own things that would maybe justify the way they lived, the way they walked, the way they thought, as opposed to just letting God speak. Okay, And so that's, that's really what it is for us this morning. So in verse 7, Then the high priest said, are these things so? These false They were false accusations, by the way. Are these accusations against you true? And he said, Stephen, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there... When his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, but uh, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, God promised to give it to him for possession to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And here's the prophecy. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So he's giving him a little background. First of all, folks, as he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, God doesn't dwell in a building. He was with Abraham at the call. And as Abraham was a little reluctant to obey the call, completely did head in the right direction, but paused in a place that he wasn't supposed to pause in. That's why he said he was called in Mesopotamia. He stopped there in Haran, and then he finished the journey all the way. He was told by God to get out from away from his family, and yet he brings his dad and his nephew with him. A little bit of disobedience. And so they get halfway to the promised land where they were supposed to go directly and pause and wait there. And then when his dad died, he finished that calling. He's showing them something that there's a growth that takes place in people. You know, you're not automatically this, you know, whiz-bang, obedient child of God, you know. Yes, sir, here I go and jump all the way. And sometimes it's a process for some people. Okay, I'll, I'll go that way, but I'm... And we're not completely obedient, but we're kind of obedient. And God will wait. God doesn't take the promise away from Abraham. He doesn't say, well, that's it. You didn't do what I told you to do. Forget it. I'm looking for somebody else. 
He waits for him. Now the promise couldn't be fulfilled until Abraham decided to be completely obedient. And once he was, there he is. It happened, just like he said it was going to happen, just like God had promised. But until he had shed the family members, (laughs) until he had gotten all the way to the promised land like he was supposed to be, it couldn't happen. Of course, that's a lesson for all of us. And, you know, we're all in that place of learning how to be obedient to God, and sometimes we go halfway. And God's faithful because he knows that we're just his kids and we're learning how to walk with him, you know, as with a child or a toddler who's learning how to walk and they're walking along the couch and you try to get them to step away from the couch and move towards you and they stumble and fall. You don't throw your hands up in the air and say, you're worthless, got to find some other kid to figure this out. No, you're faithful to say, good job, you tried. Now stand up and keep coming, keep coming, you know. And our Father's very faithful for us to do that, to listen to him and we want to obey. Um, And Abraham tried and he did it kind of, you know, but then he came all the way. And so Stephen's bringing this out. It takes a while for even Abraham, who's the father of faith, who's the one we talk about the most, he would say to the Sanhedrin. We, we think he's great, right? right? Well, he wasn't great at, right off the bat. So he's trying to teach them something. You know what? Maybe there's something for you to still learn. Maybe you don't have it all down right now. Maybe there is a little more obedience waiting for you. you know? Maybe you're halfway. Just a thought, you know. So he addresses that. Before he even got there, the promise was given to him and God was with him, you know. And so he tells him a little bit about that background. Now he moves on to the second section, the patriarchs. So he's gone really quickly through three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which I couldn't help but think to myself, how many first-generation Christian families we have here? God may have been talked about in the past. You may have even attended church, but you know what kind of home life you had whether that Christianity came all the way into the house and was lived there or not. Or for some of you, you've made a break. I know we talked about God in my family when I grew up, but we're going to live it now. We're going to do it. It's going to be in our home. It's going to be in our every being. He's not going to be a part of our life. He's not a Sunday or a Wednesday thing. He's a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week thing. And I wonder how many families here at our fellowship are first-generation Christian families. All this to say, Abraham just wanders around and never really inherits the promise. Even the second generation kind of did back and forth, and God did some neat things with Isaac, but he's kind of got a real brief you know, biography. And then Jacob comes along, and that's when things start kicking up a gear. And it makes me wonder how many of us think that way. See, I like to have the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, take place in my 80 years or however long I'm going to live, you know? I like it to all be summed up, and then J.D. did awesome. You know, that's how I want it to end. He inherited the land, and he, you know, I want that voice at the end of my life. But maybe it's not. How many of us think generationally, you know? You first-generation Christian families and parents who started raising their kids up from birth, teaching them the scriptures, teaching them Bible stories, helping them walk, letting them watch you walk with the Lord, teaching them grace, forgiveness, all these things. I wonder what that generation God will do, and will he build then upon that? Of course he will, you know. And then what will those kids do, your grandkids do, you know, and so on. How do, you, how do you change a city that you've been praying for? Does it just happen with once the church pops up, you know, boop, Calvary Chapel showed up, and all of a sudden the city gets better? No. How many of our grandkids will be on the 
on the board someplace, you know? How, which one of our kids will be the mayor? Well, I didn't think about that. Which one of our kids will be on the school board? Which one of our kids will be those in those positions, you know, that's maybe been ruled and reigned? I'm not saying anything against anybody's group. I don't know who, who believes what. I'm just saying, how do you know, you know? Where will my grandkids sit? My grandchild, he's the mayor of Maryville, you know? Mayor, mayor Caleb, you know? JC's like, I, I hope we're not, you know, well, no. He, he, he wants to live here forever, don't you, son? You don't ever want to move away. How do we know? And I had that thought. I just wonder what God's going to do with the next generations of the kids. In our, I mean, if you looked at the crowd up here, I mean, it's getting longer and longer. Minus Toby on the end here. Sorry, Tobe. He's an old guy on the end over here playing the bass. But they're all young kids, you know? And we do that on purpose. It's not that we don't like old people singing up here. We do. We do. But you know what? It's their turn. It's their turn to, to start raising up and rising up and becoming responsible and, and leading and, 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 and feeling what it's like to, with the gifts that they have to serve. You know, Sunday school teachers, little kids, I call them little kids. They're like 16, 17-year-old Sunday school teachers back there, or at least assistants or helpers or whatever. It's exciting, you know. See what God's going to do. And so I think about this. This is a big plan. God's showing through Stephen to the Sanhedrin, look, it's a big deal. There's patterns in your life, which he's going to cover here, but there's also a big, big plan God's got going on. It started with Abraham, but he just walked around and nobody knew who he was at the time. I mean, some did, but not like, not like we do now kind of thing. So verse 9. He moves on to the patriarchs. Those are the 12 sons of Jacob, the, 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 the tribes of, of Israel. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Another little insight to them. You know, God was with Joseph even when he wasn't where he was supposed to be. Even when he was in Egypt, God was with him. So much for the temple being the location of God. You know, So much for the building being where God is, the house of God. This is not the house of God. No building out there with any marquee out there is the house of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of men. That's the house of God. That's the temple of the Holy Spirit is us. We, he dwells in his church, in his people. So wherever I go, wherever you go, God is there. That's the idea. We come here and gather together for corporate worship, to come together to, to read and study God's word together, but that doesn't mean that it ends here once we leave the house of God. No, 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 the house of God just left the building that we congregate in, you know. And so he's trying to bring that point out to him. Joseph was carried off into Egypt, sold by his brothers, but God was with him. And here's a, another pattern. The patriarchs re rejected the way of salvation for them at first. Joseph being a type of Christ, and that's what he's getting to. Verse 10, and delivered him out of the hands, out of all of his troubles, God did and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out his fathers first. I sent out our fathers first, excuse me. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives uh, to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamer, the, the father of Shechem. Some people get caught up on that 75 people thing. Let me try to explain that to you. Uh, Stephen's quoting from the, the Greek, uh, and it's a, it's a Septuagint is what it is, and it does say 75 people there. And all, all it is is he's not saying there weren't 70 people that went down to Egypt, like um, uh, let's see, Exodus forty six twenty seven or Genesis forty six twenty seven, Exodus one five, both say seventy. He's just including the grandkids that were born in Egypt in the Septuagint. That's the that's the only difference. There's no uh, contradiction here in God's word. He's quoting from the Septuagint that said seventy five, including the grandkids. So, no big deal there. But anyway, that's not the point of the text. What Joseph is trying to show him, or <laughs> Stephen is trying to show him through Joseph is that you rejected Joseph, your fathers did. They had something to learn. And the first time that Joseph was revealed to him, Joseph thought his brothers would understand. You know, we can't give Joseph a hard time. Maybe he shouldn't have shared the dreams. You know, Maybe that's not what your brothers needed to hear. And I've even taught that a little bit. But honestly, Joseph thought his brothers were in the same place he was, heart-wise, God-wise, relationship-wise with the Lord. He thought, surely they'd understand that. Isn't this great? God's called me. Someone from our family got called, and I'm the one. And he thought they would understand that. Much like Jesus, when he revealed himself to the nation of Israel, they should have understood who he was. It wasn't sin for Jesus to share who he was, that he was the Son of God, and that he had come as the Savior and all that. It wasn't sin. It wasn't wrong. He wasn't supposed to keep that concealed. There was a time and a place he was supposed to share that. And when he did, they rejected him. But that was their fault, not Jesus' fault. That was the father's fault, not Joseph's fault. Or, you know, the patriarch's, his brother's fault, not Joseph's fault. Joseph can only be who he is and share who he is. And whether they understand that or not is up to them. That's their responsibility to receive or to reject. And so Joseph, or uh, let me get that mixed up. Stephen's trying to explain the Sanhedrin. It's up to you whether you receive or reject this Messiah. He is who he is. He can't claim to be anybody else other than who he is. That, that would be lying, and he won't lie. So he's telling you the truth. You guys need to receive him as well. And so he's showing them a pattern. Not only that God was with whoever that he was with, wherever they went, but also that you are in the process, you're in a, a habit of rejecting God's messengers, God's deliverers. And in case you didn't get that one, he's going to move on to Moses here. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, in other words, to be exposed, to be you know, in the ark, uh, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and, deed, and deeds. So God was with Moses also. Even though uh, Moses was left and supposed to be exposed to the elements to die, God was with him, and God, through miraculous circumstances, saved him and protected him in these situations. And likewise, he did the same for Jesus. Joseph, Moses, Jesus. He's trying to make, help them to see the connection here. Um, Moses thought people would understand too. 
just like Joseph thought. In verse 23, now when he was 40 years old, this is Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he was supposed, he was, for he supposed that uh, his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. You rejected Moses the first time he revealed himself to you as well, and he had to leave. That's the idea. Verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the Lord your God. The, uh, I, am, I am the God of your fathers, excuse me, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take uh, your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people where you are, who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Again, the place where Moses was standing at the foot of the bush was holy ground because God was there. Again, showing them that the temple isn't the thing. Don't worship the temple. Don't let the temple become the thing. And you know, besides not letting the building become the act of, or the object of worship. You know, we want to worship the building. I don't think we do here. I don't think we have a problem with that. But we do have a problem. If this is the temple of the Holy Spirit, we, we do tend to worship our bodies a lot. A lot. Most New Year's resolutions are about the physical. Very few, I would say, that I hear about anyway, are about the spiritual. Oh God, you know. Let me become a better person. Let me become more like Christ. Let me become uh, more forgiving, more gracious, more merciful. I resolve myself to be obedient to your word this year. That would be great. That's good. But more than likely, it's I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year that we declare to each other. You know, We're really going to start doing this, that, or the other thing. You know, I hope that I can bend into that warrior position like I've always wanted to bend into. I don't even know what the warrior position is. I just wanted to pick on yoga again today. What a waste of time. Anyway, but we begin to worship our bodies. We begin to think that that is the source. That is what's going to bring us peace. That is what's going to, you know, if I can contort myself in this position, then I'll be able to, no. No, we begin to worship the temple as opposed to worshiping the occupier of the temple, God. So important to worship him. Nothing wrong with losing a few pounds, by the way. I didn't mean that. I just meant don't worship it. You know, don't worship it. So, uh, he's showing them. Look, the bush, he had to take his shoes off there. It was so holy. We don't even take our shoes off when we go into the temple. You know, um, this is amazing for them. Now, uh, let's see, where are we? Where am I? Yeah, there we go. Uh, I will come and send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler 
and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. Remember they said that he was against the law, he was speaking things against the law. He's saying, look, way back when, when we got the law, we, we didn't receive the law. We weren't obedient to the law then. Um, I'm more obedient, Stephen would say, than even you guys are, because you're not obedient to the law. That's what they were upset with, with Jesus. You know, uh, they didn't understand what the, what the Sabbath was. And so they would accuse him of breaking the Sabbath all the time, and he wasn't. He was the author of the Sabbath. And what he did was what they were supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. They never really fulfilled the law. They never understood it. They understood they weren't supposed to walk, maybe, or they weren't supposed to lift something over 40 pounds. That's how they interpreted it. They made it very physical, very observable, and forgot about the the heart of the matter. If a person's suffering, by all means, heal them on the Sabbath, you know, take care of them. That's a fulfillment of the law, not a breaking of the law. And so he shows them that, you know, even when we got them, we didn't obey them. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know whether or what has become of him. And they made a cat. They thought he was up. They were, he was up on the mountain the whole time, and they hadn't come down in, in several days, almost well, over a month, and, and they were wondering where he was. So they decided not to wait for him anymore. That's the background story in this. And they made a calf, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to Worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, um, Ramphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. He gave them up to it. Even though Moses was chosen, even though miracles and signs and wonders were done through him, even though the deliverance from Egypt was obvious, they still wouldn't accept the Savior that God had sent to them. Even though signs and wonders, and that's important for us to understand, oh, I wish there were signs and wonders in the churches today. It wouldn't matter. Signs and wonders don't change the hearts of men. Signs and wonders are wonderful and should follow the teaching of the Word of God by all means. But don't think for a minute that that's going to change someone's heart who doesn't want Jesus. They'll just dismiss them or uh, uh, you know, give, the, give credit someplace else, but not to God. Yes, a notable uh, wonder has been done here, but it wasn't Jesus. It was somebody else. It was something else. You know, it wasn't God, is what they'll say. And so he shows them the fickleness of their hearts. You know, he did all these things for you, so obvious, and yet you rejected the Messiah then? And you're doing it now. You rejected Joseph then. You rejected Moses. You're rejecting Jesus. He's trying to show them the pattern of behavior. And anybody open to the scriptures should be able to receive that, should see that and understand that, you know. But they don't. 
So they sacrifice to idols. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you over to Babylon. I'm going to give you over to your desires. I'm going to let you worship those things. I'm going to let them answer your prayers, the little wooden thing you made, that little golden thing you own. You know, Don't worship your body and then pray to me to help you. No, I'm going to let your body answer you. You know? Oh God, heal our marriage, you know. Well, stop worshiping your body, you know. Start worshiping the Lord. Become a beautiful woman or a beautiful man on the inside. That's what'll heal a marriage, not not your shape, not your form. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. As he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern which he had seen, which our fathers, having received it, in turn also brought with Joshua into the land, possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, and the house being the temple, however... The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? He wants them. He's trying not to be rude or to be a a teacher of those who should be teaching, but it's hard not to point out the obvious. You guys put so much emphasis on this holy temple And it's only holy when God's here. It's not holy any other time. And when Jesus died, he says, I leave to your house desolate. That's the last thing he said as he walked out of the temple. I leave your house to you desolate. It's not holy anymore. He's not there. So important. And he wanted them to understand that. We had a tent, and when God would dwell there, the Shekinah glory would blow out the doors on the thing. It was amazing. And then we moved him into a house, and, 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 and this is what the prophet says. How are you going to build me a place to live? Earth's my footstool, you know. That's a big house we're going to have to make. And he wasn't making fun of them. He understand their heart, and he understand they needed a place to congregate, and that's fine, but don't worship it. And so he says this. Now, what's happening and what you don't see here? is a gnashing of teeth is beginning. The way this is worded is that this is prolonged. They're starting to listen to him going, you're teaching. Uh, You can hear him whispering back and forth. And he's just going on with his sermon. We don't get the feedback he's getting at visually while he's watching their faces turn, you know, from, yeah, what do you have to say for yourself? And they start feeling convicted. They start feeling that presence of the Holy Spirit coming from him, convicting them of their sin. They're starting to reject and they're starting to grimace and they're turning their faces and they're, you know. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen a, like a mean dog before. A mean dog, just anywhere, a mean dog. Well, I mess with mean dogs. As long as they're on a chain, I kind of, you know, they bother me. Every, every time I go into a house, there's some little thing, you know, little rat sticking his head out from underneath some chair or some couch or something, you know. And and, and now, if I've ever come to your house, I've never done this at your house. But while I'm setting up the equipment or whatever, I'll just stare at that dog because they hate that when you stare at them. I just stare at them. And they start getting frothy and foamy, you know. I'm like, I love that. Because there's nothing to do about it. But that's the idea here, sort of. 
Stephen with the face of an angel, not my face when I'm at their, their house, not your house. Um, they're turning, they're frothing, they're beginning to, oh, they're going into a frenzy now. And these are grown men, men of the cloth back then, men who were supposed to be leading the nation of Israel, bringing them to the Lord. Instead, we're pushing them away, keeping their distance, letting them know that they're not, none of them are worthy kind of thing, never, never being the intercessors they were supposed to be in between God and man, being that blessing, being that humble servant. This is happening to them as Stephen, this kid with the face of an angel, is telling them their business, this is happening, okay? And so he switches gears. They're not receiving him. They're not listening to him. They're not getting the message that he's trying to share. And he says what God has said 10 different times in the Old Testament in Exodus 32.9, in Jeremiah 9.26, and both in one place, Deuteronomy 10.16, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. That's him staring at the dogs till they go overboard. That's the idea. You can see them frothing and foaming, not accepting him, not understanding what he's saying. He says, okay, well, let's just go for it. You're those guys. You're doing it again. You're following the pattern. Jesus has been sent by God to deliver you from your sins and you're rejecting him and you've killed him already. Which one of the prophets didn't you do that to? Which one of you guys didn't? Which one of your fathers are you so proud of when he, you know, they killed Jeremiah, they killed whoever, Isaiah? You know, you killed them all. And you did the same thing again. You're following the same pattern. Now, what's supposed to happen is this. Look what happens here. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Do you remember the last time that was said in Acts? When a person's cut to the heart, Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his sermon, they were cut to the heart. And what did they say? What must we do to be saved? What do we do now? He gives this sermon, they were cut to the heart, with the word of God, by the way, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They become the ravenous dogs. Please understand this. When you give out the gospel to somebody, you have no idea. You may cut them to the heart, or God will, by his word, but you have no idea what kind of response you're going to get back, nor is it your responsibility. Is this a successful message as they're all weep, you know, gnashing their teeth at him and they're going to kill him here eventually? Was that a good sermon? Was that understanding? Was that seeker-friendly? Was it gracious? Was it merciful? Or was it just the truth that they rejected, you know? We don't know. You can't worry about that. I can't look out on a crowd of mixed, you know, groups of people. Some are saved here this morning. Some are probably not saved here this morning. And some are cut to the heart. And some are saying, what must I do to be saved? Others are saying, I just want to get out of here as fast as I can. I'm so uncomfortable. I cannot believe he said that about dogs or whatever, you know? And that you can be offended at. That's just me talking about dogs. But you can't be offended at God's word. It's truth. But you can't be responsible. Stephen's not responsible for their gnashing. That's them. That's their hearts rejecting even what he's saying. 
In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus describes hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. That gives us an understanding of what's going on in hell. No one's down there saying, oh, I wish I'd listened. Oh, Jesus is God. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. No, they're, they're weeping because of where they are, but they're gnashing their teeth still just like these folks are. We will not have this man rule over us. And that's, that's forever. It's up to the heart of the man listening or the woman listening to be a receiver of God's word or a rejecter of God's word. Not our responsibility as to how it's received. But being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazing into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's talking about Jesus. This isn't going to help. But Stephen's Got his eyes off of them. Now they're weeping and na- or, you know, they're gnashing their teeth at him. They're going to kill him. And he just looks up. He knows what's about to happen. He knows this isn't going to go well. But he looks up and he sees Jesus standing, which is going to be more offensive to him because Jesus, the one they crucified and rejected, is standing in authority at the throne. Are you kidding me? No, he's in hell, they think. And Stephen says this. Then they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They plugged their ears and ran at him with one accord. These are grown men acting like this, going into a frenzy. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. I don't know if you know how significant that was. Do you understand that even when they wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't do it themselves? They had to get Pilate to convict him and kill him? Because they didn't have the rule of death penalty in their, or the, the punishment of death penalty. They weren't in charge of that. They had to let Rome do it or they'd be in trouble. They don't even care here. This is the same guys that killed Jesus. They just grab him and throw him outside and throw rocks at him. We don't care what, the Rome, what Rome thinks. You know, That's how mad they are. That's how upset they are. And they stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. I don't want to hear anymore. What I've heard, they didn't like. It's okay to share the gospel even if it's offensive to people. It's okay to talk about Jesus even though they don't want to hear it or they don't want to receive it. It's okay. There isn't a better way to do it. There isn't a way to make it so every time the Word of God is taught, everybody receives Christ. It isn't a delivery method problem. It's a heart receptive problem. So please be encouraged. Filled with the Holy Spirit, of course, give out the truth. Whenever God tells you to do it. So important. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man. The word young man there means uh, in full vigor or at his prime, named Saul. Saul gets changed to Paul later on, and he is the writer of half of the New Testament books. Saul was a Jew of Jews, he says. I was a I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the council. When Gamaliel is speaking earlier, which was last week on Wednesday night, if you were here, chapter 6, or chapter 5, Gamaliel is sharing. Gamaliel was Saul's teacher. And here's the thing about that is, as Gamaliel is saying, have nothing to do with these men. Let it fall apart if it's not of God. If it is of God, you're going to be fighting God. Saul directly disagrees with his teacher, directly disobeys what his teacher just said and says, forget it, I'm going to hold the clothes of those stoning this Stephen. 
as a part of the Sanhedrin. He's the young guy. He's the guy in the prime. He's the one who's superseded or gone above Gamaliel, his teacher, he thinks. Is I'll hold the coats while you kill this guy. And he watches the gear while everybody can focus on throwing rocks. That way no thieves come in and steal their stuff. That was his response. I'm not going to throw a rock, but I'll watch your stuff while you do it. This is Saul. Saul is going to become so infuriated by this moment right now, he's going to go out with letters from the Sanhedrin to go ahead and persecute all those who are of the way or the church. He's going to start putting them in prison, men, women, children. He's going to start killing them. He's so still gnashing his teeth, so affected by Stephen's speech, by Stephen's demeanor as being and having the face of an angel. He goes way over the top. That's another, in a way, encouraging thing. When you see people so affected by the gospel, so angry they walk out on you, they leave your presence because the truth has so pierced their heart, stand by. It's a great time for God to step in and minister. It's not the last time you're ever going to see them. It's not the time, oh boy, I went over the top. Uh, we'll never see Christmas or Thanksgiving will never be the same again. No, no, it very well could be the very thing that pushed them over the edge to become and have their eyes open to see Jesus, which is what's going to happen here. But it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. Stephen won't see it. So they laid down their clothes at Saul and they stoned Stephen As he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. That's how the New Testament describes those who are believers when they die. But they don't really die. They move on. They're just going to a new location. And so he doesn't say they're not dying spiritually forever. They're not dying physically forever like those going to hell. It's different for the believer. It could also mean that he did put a, you know, just go to sleep, Stephen. You're not going to want to see the rest of this. Knocked them out, you know, kind of thing. And just took them home before he had to feel all the crushing bones of the, you know, the rocks crushing his bones and so on. We don't know. All he knows this is that he asks them to forgive them. Uh, you know, don't charge him with this sin, Lord. It's exactly what Jesus said on the cross. You know, it would be really, you know, oh well, yeah, he just said that because Jesus said that. I don't know if in the moment you'd be thinking like that. I could do a quote now. You know, oh, what did Jesus say when he was there? Oh yeah, no, no, no. It was in his heart. It was natural. It came out, and that's what happens when a true Christian. Someone who's humble and broken before the Lord gets pressed and squeezed by the trials of this world. What naturally comes out is grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That's what, that's what squeezes out of people when they're being crushed as Christians. This is natural. This is what is in him. There's no guile in him. There's no hidden things. He's not pretending. When he gets crushed by trials and tribulations, this is what comes out. You know, I don't think anybody, any of us can say we've been in this position here. But this is what comes out. This is what I want to come out of me. This is what I hope would come out of me. And so God gives us little trials and tribulations throughout our lives to give us an idea of what he sees in our hearts that we can't see. You know, Here's a little trial in your way. Here's a little, here's a little difficulty in your life. Here's a big difficulty in your life, but not unto death. How did you respond? What came out of you? What squeezed out of you when I applied pressure? Ew, it was ugly. 
It wasn't what I thought was going to come out. Okay, then, we've got some work to do then, don't we? We've got some repenting to do. We've got some prayer to do. We've got to hide God's word in your heart. We've got some seeds we need to be planting so that that fruit does come out next time. There's some work to be done. Or encouragement. Boy, I got pressed and all I could do was praise the Lord. I was excited. All right. No kudos, no pat on the back necessarily, but at least uh, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. This is good. And so that's where we leave off this morning in chapter 7. So, since we're in this chapter anyway, um, it's kind of hard to, to avoid it. As God's word has been shared this morning, and those of you who are unbelievers and have darkened the door of this place where we've gathered together, are you gnashing your teeth? If you are, that's okay. Maybe God's hit you hard enough that he might get you next week or some other time in some other place. We're praying for you, we hope. Or are you ready to say, what do I do now? That is me. I'm the one that comes to the Bible and tries to read it to justify everything I do. I'm convicted now. I feel like I need to make a change. I feel like I need to come to the Lord. I feel like I haven't been walking with Him. I feel like I don't even know this God that you're talking about. I thought I did in name. But as I'm running into Stephen here, I don't look anything like that. What must I do now? That's a good question to ask this morning. Just receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've sinned. I've sinned. We've separated ourselves from a holy God who can't have sin in His presence because of our actions, because of our sin. He had to do something about that. Otherwise, we would be eternally separated from Him. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for those sins, to pay the penalty for those sins so that we can be justified in His presence and stand before God for eternity and be with Him. But until we make that decision to believe whom God has sent to die on the cross for our sins, we're still in that former place of we have a sentence of death waiting for us and we will be eternally separated from God because of our sins. So this morning, the simple thing that needs to take place is you believe the way of salvation that God has made for you, that Christ died on the cross for those sins, and that because of that and that only, I can stand in the presence of God, and I receive that this morning. It's a very simple prayer. I will pray it, but it's got to come from your heart to his. You have to mean it. It has to be sincere. It has to be something that you believe. Mouthing the words won't do it. It's not an incantation. It's not a spell. It's something that you declare to God that's changed in your heart. So pray with me now if you want to receive Christ. Jesus, this morning I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I believe on you for my salvation. I trust that what you did on the cross is sufficient for my sins, that you paid the penalty for all of my sins. And I believe that with all my heart this morning, and I give you my life. My control over my life thus far has got me to this place where I need you, where I'm broken, full of humiliation, full of conviction. So I want to give you my life to take control, to fill me with your spirit, like Stephen was filled with the spirit, that my life might change and reflect you properly, that I might look like you, act like you, walk like you. As a child of yours now, I want to be like you, God. So thank you for your son dying on the cross for my sins, that while I was an enemy of yours, while I was venomous and gnashing my teeth against you, you still died on the cross for my sins. I thank you for that. Now help me to be like Stephen, like Philip later on, like, like Paul will be, Lord, a child of yours who lives to serve you, lives to tell other people about you, to declare you and what you've done in our lives, in my life. So I give you my life this morning. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, 
Josh is over here. He'll be glad to pray with you. Toby's over here. I'll be glad to pray with you here in the middle or whatever. But otherwise, have a great rest of the week, guys. If you need a Bible, they're free. Grab one on the table out there or over there by the sound booth and, and, and read it. Read it.